Hello and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Matthew Brionis, Associate Professor of American History and the College from the Department of History. His research focuses include the history of Asians in America, interracial relationships, African-American history, and the history of race, sports, and politics. He is also a faculty affiliate for the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. Professor Brionis is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Brionis. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks, Lee. Really appreciate being here. So, Matt, just to start out, can you give me a general overview of your career path from your college years to your position today as a professor at UChicago? Sure. I grew up in Boston, and my dad and mom came over here from the Philippines in 1968. And so, you know, they, but I thought I was going to follow in his footsteps and become a doctor, et cetera. But once I got to Harvard and did very poorly in bio and chem, I recognized, you know, pre-med's not going to happen. I just wasn't serious enough in college to do much of anything, to be honest with you, but certainly not pre-med. And when I graduated, I I was an English major, really interested in AFAM literature, African-American literature. I went on and taught English at a local, it was a private school for boys called Belmont Hill. But I taught there for four years and I loved it. I was a coach, um, you know, soccer, basketball and track and lived on the campus and really just thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. But one summer I was I was lucky enough to go up to Middlebury, Vermont. They have something called Breadloaf School of English and took a course with Robert Steptoe of Yale and just kind of fell in love with the idea of maybe teaching college and the following year kind of went off to uh, apply to a couple of PhD programs and only got into a couple of them, but Harvard was one of them and kind of made the switch from just English to looking at both history and literature and and was in uh, an American studies program. It was called History of American Civilization at the time, and now it's an American Studies program. And my mentor in college, Werner Solers, he was a great literary, he is a great literary scholar, He's, he's an emeritus now sort of invited me back and I worked with him and Cornell West and Akira Irie, just a number of really interesting different kinds of folks from different backgrounds, you know, history, philosophy, literary scholars, and just went with what I really thought I'd love, which was studying sort of the interaction between African Americans and Asian Americans and wrote a dissertation about a a really interesting guy who wrote in his diary for 47 straight years, was incarcerated during the Second World War because of being Japanese-American, and looked at how he, you know, interacted with other racialized groups during the incarceration, but also particularly after the war, Um, and just what that meant for him and how he viewed civil rights and sort of viewed other racialized groups struggle in the post-war. So with a postdoc fellowship, a Mellon postdoc, and parlayed that into an, a, a tenure-track job. And it was an American culture program at, at Michigan, worked with a, a great mentor, a great Native American scholar, Phil Deloria. And uh, he guided me for the next four years until sort of family considerations forced me to apply for a new job and came over here, came down here to the University of Chicago in 2009. And I've been here ever since, you know, and it's been up and down. It's like anything, anybody's life, you have your ups and downs. So the personal will sometimes affect the professional, but I've really grown to love the place. The students are excellent. I've taught at Harvard, Michigan, Princeton, 
Columbia. And these, honestly, these are the best students I've taught, maybe next to Princeton students, but they're just, they take it seriously. You know, my predecessor was May Nye, the great immigration historian now at Columbia. So they were big shoes to fill, but I've really enjoyed my time here ever since. So Matt, I'm curious how you would explain your research to someone who has no idea what it is, no experience with it. Sure. It's, I'm interested in the possibilities of, in a very broad sense, you know, how do people get along, you know, and how they can get along and particularly across racialized or even socioeconomic lines, gendered lines, et cetera. How do you build interracial coalitions or just coalitions moving forward? And they can fail, they can succeed, but even if they fail, are there moments where you could see the possibility that something could be a a promising relationship? Back in 1955, Yale historian C. Van Woodward, he wrote this great book called The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And it was timely because it was trying to also prove to people who were wrestling with Brown v. Board of Education and the idea of integrating um, schools and and black and white kids. The idea, he, he writes about the South and says, actually, you know, the immutable history of the South, it's not immutable. You know, there was a time at which black and white people were able to live together, integrated in the South. And so if that is a possibility that took place before Civil War, et cetera, then it can then that can return and, and, and sort of trying to understand the possibility of integration and, and interracial alliances. So I sort of follow that uh, blueprint, the idea that, oh, boy, you know, in 1992, you have these L.A. riots or the uprising and you see African-Americans in turmoil with Korean-Americans, for example. These two groups can never get along. But I think if you go back in the history and you try to understand, look, these groups have interacted before, and there have been moments of great alliance historically, and particularly during a flashpoint like the Japanese-American incarceration, seeing someone like W.E.B. Du Bois standing up when no one else would and in fighting for Japanese-American civil rights and, and calling out the government for its error, and then increasingly seeing more and more other sort of racialized and interracial groups rallying to Japanese-American causes shows you the possibility of what can be done politically, what kind of coalitions can be built to sort of advance what we think of as this real democratic experience. Hopefully that would give them a sense, you know, how do people get along and what is the history and what's the possibility of people getting along again, you know, particularly in the middle right now of you know, Black Lives Matter movements, anti-Asian violence and hatred in the United States. You know, can these two groups form an alliance that also sort of, you know, because there certainly is a lot of anti-Black racism in the Asian American community or even anti-Asian sentiment in the African American community. But as we know, these are really, they're not monolithic groups. And so I see more overlap and interaction in a positive sense and uh, so that's that's what I'm trying to understand. You know, what did I learn? What can I tell you about the past of in terms of relationships between racialized groups that might help us in our present and in, and in our future? Thank you for that explanation, Matt. And I know you said that in college, you realized that you didn't want to be a physician. You didn't want to go the medical route and that you weren't necessarily the most serious student. What were you like in middle and high school? Who were you as a student and as a person? Yeah, I mean, that's when I was really serious. You know, I mean, I, I had the 
unfortunate and maybe unique experience that uh, my parents left me at a pretty young age. They they left me with my oldest brother in, in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts when I was nine. And I kept on going to a school called the Dexter School. It was for all boys. And JFK had gone there and George Bundy and all of these, you know, Brahmins from Boston. But I went from fourth grade to eighth grade there and just studied my butt off and worked really hard. Missed my parents. Didn't understand why they were gone, to be honest with you. And then headed off to boarding school in Western Massachusetts, a place called Deerfield Academy, where my, my two brothers had gone as well. Was really homesick, was really depressed, but my emotional development wasn't to a point that I could really understand what was going on. I think if I did, it really could have destroyed me. So what I ended up doing was really putting a lot of those you know, anxieties and feelings into working really hard, you know, academically, athletically, extracurricularly, et cetera. And, you know, ever since I was nine, I always had the idea, I'm going to Harvard, I'm going to Harvard, I'm going to work so hard that I'm going to go to Harvard. And sure enough, I did that as a 17, 18 year old. But once I got to Harvard, I recognized my God, you know, this is not the end all be all, you know, this isn't going to make me completely happy emotionally. And I really struggled just in sort of growing up and becoming a young man. I didn't have enough modeling from parents. And my brothers were too young. They were only six years older and eight years older to really help me deal with a lot of, um, you know, emotion, sadness, anger, et cetera, depression that I, I really experienced during my college years. So it was tough. And, and Harvard then was kind of a mixed experience for me. I loved it in some ways, hated it in others. And then and then I returned four years later. So I spent 11 years of my first 33 years at Harvard. And it was really, I didn't know any better. I was a really small, you know, in a lot of ways, very parochial and very small minded and not emotionally developed. And I do think a lot of kids like that go to these elite institutions in America, right? But I also think that's why we're starting to see spikes in suicides in these places, a lot of suicidal ideation and depression. And it's not healthy, you know. And so I, I make a point of telling my students, you know, every every quarter how important it is for them to seek help, you know, uh, and, and to seek out therapy or at least seek out professional services. Just knowing what they're going through, you know, and maybe some of them don't want to admit it and don't can't put, you know, words that can't describe it or, or are afraid to share it with friends. But I think if I share my own experience and say how depressed I was going through Harvard, then at least I think they can see, whoa, okay, this guy's all right. He's made it, but it sounds like he had a lot of struggles and failures. Maybe I I can, you know, admit to that as well. So yeah, I feel like that that's part of my job now, right? And teaching. Um, it's not just the academics. It's not just the scholarship that I'm writing. It really is to kind of, you know, mentor and tend to these young people who are struggling. And particularly after COVID, their socialization skills aren't the best and, and they're not the best at expressing their real feelings and admitting it. So it's, I think this is our responsibility. A lot of my, you know, my responsibility as a higher education teacher and, and my colleagues, you know, is to really look out for these kids. I appreciate that reflection. And I wonder if looking back on that period of time during your high school years, that there's any memories or any insight into who you were then that really explain how you became the person that you are today and why you have these particular research interests. It's a great question. You know, I, I was looking for family. 
you know, to be honest with you, you know, when you, when you're abandoned at nine and my oldest brother tried his best to bring me up, but he was a freshman in college. I mean, there was only so much he could do. So I got to boarding school and really thought of trying to seek out a surrogate family, whether that meant great teachers I had who really mentored me or coaches and friends, you know, and it tended to be a pretty multiracial group, to be honest. You know, we weren't the, we weren't the group of kids who came from a lot of money and were third or fourth generation prep preppies, you know, we were black kids, yellow kids, poor white kids from California. And my need to have a kind of surrogate family, I think, really affected the way in which I saw myself over time, you know, and college was like that too, kind of trying to seek out a niche and your group of friends and a surrogate family. But it's really evident when you read my book that, you know, Charlie Kikuchi, the guy I write about, was orphaned at a young age. He reconnected with his family during incarceration, but he was already an older, older man by then. Not an older man, but, a, you know, not a young man anymore. And you just see him sort of growing up in this multiracial orphanage. And so, you know, I write a history of his family and of his quest to sort of find not only, you know, his own Kikuchi family, but really to find his place within the American family. Uh, and how Japanese Americans were really trying to seek a table, sorry, seek a seat at the table, you know, of American democracy. And so there are parallels there that I didn't really know it in, in the time that I was writing my dissertation. But I remember my daughter, you know, she was reading the preface to my book and she was only in high school and she just said, yeah, this book's totally about you, isn't it, Dad? So it's it's kind of funny the way these things as you say, it, it was something that was probably formed even before high school, the idea of how do you search for family, you know, and then how do you belong, you know, and, and I think that completely affects how I, I look at the world and how I study what I study, you know, how do these Filipinos, Native Americans, African Americans, how do they find themselves, you know, within the American family? You know, what about those ethnic white groups that weren't completely white, you know, the Irish and the Italians and Slavs and Jews, you know? How did they get to a point where they were accepted, you know, or have they been, you know? I mean, so it really is thinking a lot about belonging and, again, the potential to be part of uh, this democratic family. So understanding, you know, how you became interested in those particular subjects, why did you want to become a professor? What was appealing to you about spending your life in academia? I think I was pretty jaded about it. You know, I think going through the first few years of the Ph.D. process were, were really disheartening because what ends up happening is you have a lot of young, insecure folks who are very bright, intellectually jousting, you know, in these small little classrooms in Cambridge. And it's forgive me for using the phrase, but, you know, it's a pissing contest. You know, a lot of people are really trying to impress the professor, put you down, et cetera. So I think initially I was thinking, man, you know, this is not really the kind of beloved community I want to be a part of. And even when I became a, a tenure track professor, it, it was really hard here at UFC for a little while to feel like, wow, you know, I really want to do this long term. Gaining tenure, achieving tenure is a hard thing. You're trying to, you know, write a book, you know, tra tra transform your dissertation into a book, but you're juggling a heck of a lot on in your personal life, too. I had two young daughters that were four years apart. So, you know, you can only imagine two young kids under five struggling with, with an ex-wife who was also struggling with her own professional career as a physician. And I really didn't know I wanted to stay with it. I wanted to become a writer. I want to write the great American novel, you know. So I'll, I'll just say it's a mixed bag. And I think it's a lot of good luck 
you know, I did end up getting tenure kind of a little bit early and became much more comfortable with my colleagues here. Tom Holt, Leora Auslander, Adam Green, just really good friends who were looking out for, for me. And uh, I felt like they, they really got to know me, not just sort of the, the academic. And I've sort of ever since then, I've kind of recognized, my God, how lucky are you? You know, you get to teach at a top 10 university in the world and these great students, you get time off and you get paid to do this. This is crazy. So, you know, the first world problems sort of uh, go by the wayside and, and uh, I experienced a very bad divorce. So, you know, just being able to spend time with my daughters who are now 18 and 14, you know, that's just the world to me, you know. So so being able to be a professor who has a little bit of time to extra time to be able to spend time with his kids, something that I didn't get as a kid means the world to me. And I still think you can bring that kind of attitude to your classroom, to be honest with you, and to your scholarship. You know, I think if you can, like one of the questions you'd ask, you know, is what kind of sustains you or, you know, what are the highlights? It's always the students. It's always, you know, being around these young people and hearing what they think and constantly feeling rejuvenated year to year, you know, um, and not getting jaded about it yet. And I've been doing, you know, I've been teaching since 1995. So I get nervous every fall. You know, and I just feel like, boy, that must mean that I really care about this. You know, until I don't feel nervous, I think I'll I'll keep doing it. Who did you lean on for support? Who was there for you? Professionally, you know, the mentors were were, you know, unparalleled. You know, I, I talked about Werner Solers. He's a great German American scholar who who has written countless books about African American literature and interracialism and. Um, Cornell West really was a, a huge rock throughout a lot of my life, uh, particularly my, my mom passed away in 2008. And um, throughout the months leading up to her, her death, you know, I would hear from him every day and he would just check in and see how I was doing. And he knew I wasn't religious, even though he himself is a lay Christian minister. So it wasn't, wasn't ever talking about God or anything like that. It was just making sure I was okay. Uh, he means the world to me. And then in Michigan, I mentioned before, uh, the Native American scholar Phil Deloria just looked out for me. And was, it's just a, you know, one of the good people in this line of work, earnest, thoughtful, brilliant. He's moved on to, to Harvard now, but just the kindness that he showed me. So professionally, I would say at the very least, there are those three. You know, back to back in my personal life, it really is my, my wife, Joanna, now and, and my two daughters, you know, Kate and Samela. They, they were they they saw their dad cry a lot. They, you know, leaned on me as much as I leaned on them. And, and that's what's that's what's sort of been they've been my rock, you know, and not to mention a lot of therapy, you got to get a, a lot of good therapy in there. So I've been able to rely on a, on a great therapist as well. So you mentioned the sense of nervousness that you have and that as long as you have that, you want to continue to do this work. But I also wonder if you have any aspirations and who or what continues to inspire you to do more, to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things I learned from Cornell West was part of the, our job here is to to unhouse, you know, and to to discomfort or discomfort you, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, not to feel uncomfortable in class or, you know, triggered in that sense, but to feel intellectually unhoused, to see things from a different 
angle that you had never thought of before. And likewise, not only to try to encourage your students to, to think that way, but to learn from them and to really, there isn't a year that goes by that doesn't go by, I guess that, that would be the right way to say it, that, you know, I don't say to students, wow, I never thought about it that in that way. You know, I, I'm still constantly learning. You know, I, I think a lot of my teachers, but really Cornell has always influenced me. And I, and I do feel like there is there's a lot you can do in the classroom, and I will never be a great activist, a scholar activist, or public intellectual the way some of my colleagues are, or the way that Cornell is. To really come back to an idea of carrying on his tradition of, of sort of asking ourselves, you know, what does it mean to be, he says, American, Democrat, small d, and a human? Those three pillars, you know, and, and how if people like James Baldwin or Toni Morrison or name the African-American intellectual Du Bois or, you know, how do they constantly kind of go to the well and, and try to help their readers and, and interlocutors understand what does it mean to be, you know, an American? What does it mean to be a Democrat? What does it mean to be a human in this particular moment? And my God, in this particular moment with, with everything that's, um, everything we believe in, you know, in democratic pillars, uh, I know, I know from history that it, it has never been this, you know, a secure bulwark. It's not American exceptionalism, but this is really quite a moment, quite a crisis in our democracy. So I guess the answer is just to kind of convey that passion for understanding our history, but also understanding the process and our democratic process. Even if kids don't major in history, even if they're still going to take econ here or biology, at least when they, you know, leave, they'll, they'll still think, boy, you know, these are the kinds of questions I want to wrestle with, even if I'm going to be single-minded about, you know, being an investment banker or, a, you know, orthopedist, you know, that they will still come back and think, gosh, I, I at least learn to understand or think about or question uncomfortably what it means to, you know, to live in this, you know, democracy that's really being challenged. And Matt, what would your advice be for students people in general who are considering entering your field? Tread carefully. You know, I, I think, sadly, the university writ large has really gone the corporatist route. That is to say, you know, they're looking at efficiencies. They're getting rid of more tenure track professors or lines, and then they're fattening up the administrative um, uh, class, you know. So there's so many executive vice presidents of this and that. And then they're sort of, uh, you know, adjunctifying the, the teaching of, of college students, you know, and, and a lot of these folks are people who can't get tenure track jobs. They may not get great benefits, but they're going to be, you know, economically uh, efficient or economically sound. And, and I don't want my grad students having to face that. You know, I, my, my number of grad students has shrunk over the time I've been here. And I think it's because, you know, a lot of young people are recognizing the, the reality of trying to get a, a PhD and a tenure track job. That being said, you know, there are a lot of non-academic jobs that PhDs do. And if, if you're really into the life of the mind and want to get that PhD, just be prepared that, you know, increasingly non-academic jobs are out there, you know, museum work, curation maybe consulting public history. There, there are so many other options, but it's a grind. And if you want to spend seven years, you know, you really have to love your subject and you really have to, to be able to see the long game and be patient and be, be prepared for a lot of lean years. But, you know, I tell all my students, undergraduates, graduate students, friends, you know, when, when freshmen come into the University of Chicago, I always tell them, 
fail to the best of your ability, you know, try everything, try courses you've never even thought you would take. And if you fail, that's okay. You know, you pick yourself up and that's how we keep learning. This is the best way to kind of learn, you know. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with anybody who wants to come into academia and maybe figures out first couple of years, this isn't for me, you know. And, and I've had a couple students like that and they go on to do great things, you know. So failure is not necessarily a bad thing, either in your you know professional life or certainly in your personal life, you know. And I, I think the uh, the quest for perfection that so many of our young people, but particularly the students here at the UFC, you know, hold themselves to that standard is really obviously unachievable and impossible. But, you know, helping to helping to let them see, wow, you know, you can falter. You're going to learn a lot from it, you know, and it might be the best thing that happens to you going forward. So, yeah, that, that would be a... <laughs> It's a long-winded answer to what kind of advice I would give. And then finally, Matt, what is the most gratifying thing about your job? I still think it's the students. I do have wonderful colleagues, again, who I rely on and love seeing in the department. You know, Adam Green, Leora Auslander, Tom Holt, who's retired now, Ken Pomerantz, who leads up the Hong Kong Center, Neil Curie and Brody Fisher, folks who have just been good friends. But it really comes back to the students. You know, I, they're changing a little bit. I will say, you know, I think the more that UFC competes with the likes of Harvard and Stanford, there are increasingly more kids who check the boxes, check a lot of the boxes. But, the stu- you know, the, the, the odd kid, the awkward kid, the intellectually driven kid whom we still get, that brings me back every single year. You know, as I said earlier, just the youth, their, their youthfulness and energy. And the way they, you know, engage enthusiastically, that, you know, feeds me so much every year. And it's gratifying, you know, and and I always say, you know, if I could affect one kid per year, that would be great. That would be a lifetime of accomplishments. It's that's my challenge every year is to to, you know, can I make a difference in a young person's life, even if it's very infinitesimal? They won't remember the class. They won't remember my name. But maybe they'll remember some kind of idea I brought up or challenged them with, you know, and maybe that's something they think about in 20 years, 25 years. That's fine with me. I don't need the recognition. I just want them to keep thinking. And uh, if I can encourage that, you know, all the, the compensation I need, really. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Matthew Brionis. Professor, thank you for your time. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Thanks for listening.